Last week I asked the question, how do you become a better you? And how do I become a better me? And we, we said that there are some in our world today who believe that we become better by changing the way in which we feel and the way in which we look and the way in which we think through eating right, through positive thinking. We said today we have a pill and a plan and a program for just about everything. And, and though we said that one thing we have in common as believers with almost everyone in our world is that we all agree, most of us at least, most all of us agree that there is something wrong with us, right? We're in agreement over that. And we have a desire to be better than we are. Where we differ greatly as believers from the world is in the answers in which we give for how we change for the better. The world believes that if we make a physical change, our life will change for the better. But Scripture is clear that the root of our problem is in our hearts. So if our hearts don't change, nothing ultimately changes. Scripture is clear that our hearts need to be changed and only Christ can do that great work. That is the major message of the Bible and that is one of the main messages in the first part of Acts chapter 9. So if you have your Bibles, turn there. Acts 9. We looked at the first nine verses of this passage last week and we're going to try and finish this passage this morning as we continue to look at one of the greatest transformations in all the Bible, maybe in the history of the world, as we look at the conversion and the transformation of Saul of Tarsus. Remember we said last week, we learned that while Saul was on his way to persecute Christians in Damascus, he has a direct supernatural, miraculous encounter with the risen Christ. And almost immediately, he comes to the understanding that he has been fighting on the wrong side. He's been fighting against God because he's been fighting against his son, the Lord Jesus. So he then moves from being a great enemy of Christ to being one of his most faithful and one of his most fruitful servants. It's just an incredible transformation that takes place. And so what I want to do this morning, once again, like I did last week, is I want to look at this passage and I want to draw out several characteristics of a transformed life from this chapter as we look at the early ministry of Saul and as we examine another individual named Ananias. I said last week that transformed people repent of their sin place their faith and trust in Christ alone for salvation, and they're obedient to God's word. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to pick up with that list. We're going to pick up in verse 10, and we're going to learn in verse 10 and following that transformed people, number one, they commune with God. That's the next point. They commune with God. They spend time with God. Now, remember last week when we left Saul, he had been blinded by Christ and was being led by the hand into Damascus where he stayed for three days without food or drink. So let's pick up reading in verse 10. We're told, now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. 
The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. Let's stop there for a minute. This is, this is so good here because we get to see here in this passage how God works on his end. Now notice, as God is leading Saul into Damascus through the street called Straight to the house of this man named Judas, we also see while he's doing that, God is also at the same time moving on the heart of Ananias to go to Saul to help Saul get prepared for the work that he is going to have him do. And so notice in this text, you have, you have two followers of Christ communing with, spending time with God. You have one talking to God. We're told that Saul was praying to God. And you have another receiving instruction from God. So God's at work here. He's all over this situation, right? And though we don't know exactly what Saul is praying, I imagine he's praising God for opening his spiritual eyes to the truth. And he's also praying for guidance and direction on what to do next. I'm sure he prayed that, right? Because he's sitting here in a foreign city and he can't see. He's just sitting, praying, waiting helplessly on God, which is a good place to be. Notice we have God answering Saul's prayer through his servant Ananias. God says Ananias, and notice Ananias' response. I love this. Here I am, Lord. I'm I'm ready. (laughs) He He was ready to go, wasn't he? Now, we don't know much about Ananias other than what we learn here and in Acts chapter 22 when when we're told of this uh, story once again of what happened to Saul. We're told in Acts 22 verse 12 that Ananias was a devout man. He had a, a good reputation among the Jews. And we learn in Acts 9 that he was a faithful follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Some believe he might have even been the leader of the church in Damascus. We don't know that for sure, but that's possible. Others say he was probably one of the ones on Saul's list to arrest and snatch up. We don't know that for sure, but that's very likely. And instead of being arrested by Saul, he ends up going to Saul and God uses him to prepare Saul for the work of ministry. God tells Ananias to go to Straight Street in Damascus to Judas' house and he says, there you will find Saul doing what? Praying. What a transformation. Remember, early on in this passage, we're told Saul is headed to Damascus to persecute. And here a few verses down, we find him praying. And this relationship that Saul now has with God is a clear and obvious sign of a transformed life. A transformation has taken place here. Listen, are you questioning your faith this morning? Do you have doubts concerning your salvation? Well, let me ask you this. Do you spend time with God? Do you commune with him by reading and studying his word and by praying to him? And are you different as a result? Listen, you don't spend a ton of time with people you don't know. So if you don't spend time with God, it's likely you don't know him. God's people commune with God. 
They spend time with him. They spend time learning from him in his word. They spend time living for him in his world. And they spend time praying to him and relying upon him to work. Well, there's another key characteristic here of a transformed life that we see here in Acts 9. And it's this, not only do transformed people commune with God, but they faithfully serve him. God's people faithfully serve God. It is obvious in the story that both Ananias and Saul belong to God because of the close relationship that they have with him and how they serve him in ministry. They were both faithful servants of God. We see this from Saul right away. When retelling this encounter on the Damascus Road in Acts 22, we're told that after Saul identifies the voice speaking to him as the Lord Jesus, he then asks, what shall I do? He's ready to serve right away. And Jesus told him, and Saul obeyed. He began to serve the Lord immediately. Now, did he have some time away? to prepare for ministry? Yes, but he was obedient immediately and began to faithfully serve God right away. The moment he was saved, he responded to God with, Lord, what do you want me to do? How do you want to use me and where? He realized, Saul realized he had been saved to serve and he never took back over the reins of his life and did what he wanted. Sure, he struggled with it at times. But never ultimately did he do that. And he lived his life in obedience to God until his head was literally laid on a chopping block. Saul was obedient. And he faithfully served the Lord for the rest of his days. And notice Ananias is faithful as well. When God called his name, he responded immediately with, Here I am, Lord, Ananias, reporting for duty. Where do you want me to go? God called him to go and help Saul. Though Ananias was a great man of faith, with a great reputation, even he had difficulty at first grasping what God was calling him to do. And I don't know about you, but that kind of comforts me a bit. To see this great man of faith wrestle with the direct call of God, because I know that I have. Look at what he says in verse 13. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem, and here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. So so the Lord tells Ananias to go and find Saul and serve him, and Ananias responds with, "Uh, did you say Saul? (laughs) Is that who you said? Are Are you sure? said, Lord, I've uh, heard about this guy, and he's not a very nice guy. He's been snatching up Christians left and right in around Jerusalem and putting them into prison. He's been signing their death warrants, and he has been sent here to arrest us in Damascus. So he hesitates. He says, are you sure you're talking about Saul, the great enemy of you and, and your people? And notice God is very gracious with Ananias, isn't he? He didn't have to be, but he was. Because this news, let's be honest, it was a bit difficult to grasp. It would be like God calling you to go and minister to one of the heads of these uh, terrorist groups. You know, that'd be the equivalent of what what God is calling Ananias to do. So he's a bit skeptical. But notice 
God repeats himself and he says the exact same thing. Folks, God doesn't make a mistake. If he says it once, he means it. And he means it here and he says it again. Verse 15, but the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. I love that. He tells Ananias, Saul is mine now. He is my minister, my chosen instrument, and I am going to use him to make my name great before the Gentiles and before kings and before the children of Israel. So he tells Ananias, get going, Ananias. I know what I'm doing. Saul's my man now. Though he at one time was a great enemy of mine, he is now going to be a great servant for me. And and though I'm going to take my gospel out and advance my kingdom throughout the known world, I'm going to use him as a primary instrument to do this great work. And he is going to have to suffer for my name's sake as well. Look at verse 16. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So he says, he is going to suffer for me and for my name's sake. And boy, did he ever suffer. So he says to Ananias here, he says, so Ananias, I need you to go to him and I need you to get him ready for this great and costly calling. And Ananias does. He is a true servant of God. Look at verse 17. So Ananias departed and entered the house. He is a true servant. He knows Paul well. He knows Paul's history. He, he knows how Paul had persecuted Christ's church and his disciples, but his fear of Paul does not compare to his fear of God and to his love of God and to his desire to do God's will. That is a sign of a transformed person right there, folks. And, and Paul goes on to serve God in great and mighty ways as well. And I want you to notice something here about Saul. He's just been saved three days, and God is already sending Ananias to get him ready for ministry. Folks, get this. God demands immediate service. Do you know that? Now, I'm not talking about you getting up on stage and preaching before hundreds or thousands right away, but he demands for you to immediately begin to follow him and to serve him. There are too many believers in our churches today with a maybe later mentality. Let me let you in on something. God doesn't want your service later. He doesn't want your service tomorrow. He doesn't want it next week or next year or when you get mature enough to do something for him. He wants you to serve him right now today. In fact, he says very clearly in his word, tomorrow may never come for you. It might not come for me. This may be my last day here on the earth. I don't know. We don't know that. So God wants us to get busy living for him right now, today. You can always tell who's been transformed by God by what they're doing for him today. Those who belong to him have the mentality that this life will soon be passed and only that which is done for Christ will last transform people do not waste their lives they live their lives and make their lives count for god and for his glory notice also transform people are spirit-filled transform people are spirit-filled 
This is a point that we've made several times already in this book, the book of Acts. And the reason why is because the spirit-filled life is a major emphasis all throughout the book of Acts. Transformed people are people who live under the guidance and direction of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 17 through 19. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be what? Filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately, something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. Here you have Saul being commissioned to be a disciple, to be a servant, an apostle of the Lord Jesus. And you have him here being empowered for ministry. We've said this before, but the phrase filled with the Spirit means to be under the control of, guided and directed and empowered by the Holy Spirit. Folks, Paul needed the Holy Spirit's power to do the work God had called him to do. You know that? You may not believe that, but he did. He'd be the first to tell you that he did. The book of Acts is, is all about the great work of God, the Holy Spirit, through Christ's disciples. I mean, the true title for Acts needs to be this, the, the Acts of the Holy Spirit through Christ's disciples. That's what the book's all about. Luke's emphasis all throughout Acts is mainly upon the work of the Holy Spirit. And though Paul was a wonderful example for us of what a Christ-lived, Christ-like life is to look like, his his life and the fruits that came from his ministry would not have happened were it not for the end of verse 17. Were it not for him being filled with, guided and directed and empowered by the Holy Spirit. That is one of the keys to the transformed life. There are people in our churches today whose lives look no different from a non-believer. And for some, the reason is because they are a non-believer. But for others, it's because they're not living their lives under the control and being empowered by the Holy Spirit. When I was in seminary, there was a sign-up in our dining hall that I always took notice of when I was in there, and it said this, if you were on trial for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? What a wonderful question to ask yourself. I I guarantee you, if you begin to live your life under the guidance and the direction of the Holy Spirit through His Word, you're guided by Him through His Word, your life will look different you will be guilty by association because he will be living in and through you your fruits will give you away there's another sign of a transformed life and it's this transformed people are adopted into a new family look at verse 17 again we're told that when ananias entered into the place where saul was He said, Brother Saul. Now, why does he call him brother? Were they? Well, by blood they were not. They weren't physically, but but spiritually they were. You see, when, when one turns from their sin and they trust in Christ alone for salvation, they're not just forgiven of sin and declared righteous in Christ, though they are that. 
but they also are adopted into the family of God. They become children of God. Ananias and Saul were both children of God through Christ, and because that was the case, they were both spiritual brothers in him. And the same goes for all of you in here this morning who are trusting in Christ alone for salvation. If you are a follower of Christ, you are a brother or sister to every other follower of Christ in this room today. And get this, you have a more significant relationship with them than many of your blood relatives who are not trusting in Christ for salvation. And you may not like that, but it's true. I've said this before, when Christ is your life, you are naturally drawn to others who share that same desire. And it may be with someone completely different from you in every other way. And I think about this when I think about our church. Our church is diverse. It's made up of believers from different backgrounds, different socioeconomic contexts, people of different races with different tastes, different ages, different personalities. But the gospel brings us together like nothing else could. And and when this happens, when people see the transforming work of God in our lives, believers, our church becomes a strong, visible illustration of the gospel. Because Christ is the common bond that holds us together. And it's a stronger bond than we could ever have otherwise. We, as diverse as we are as a group of people, we're we're brought together and we're one family. And our bond is strong if it's in Christ. So a sign that we have been transformed is when the unbelieving and watching world sees us as different as we are living together as a family. Another sign that one has been transformed by the gospel is when they publicly identify with God's people. How do we do this? Well, one major way is by making a public profession of faith and being obedient, following, and believer's baptism. Paul did that. We're we're told in verse 18 that after Ananias went to Paul, laid hands on him, called him brother, Paul was filled with the Holy Spirit, received his sight, and what did he do? It said he rose and was baptized. Paul publicly identified himself with God's people through baptism. Now, baptism didn't save Paul. He was already saved. He was already filled with the Holy Spirit. He was saved at some point during this encounter with Christ on the road to Damascus. But he made it public by being baptized. And that, too, folks, is a sign of a transformed life. When I have the privilege of leading someone to Christ here at Fellowship, I often talk to them about making it public through being baptized because that to me is further evidence of a changed life if they want to be obedient in that way and they want to make it public. Listen, folks, there is no room in God's kingdom for secret disciples. Did you know that? No room for it. If you have been saved, you ought to want to make it known. You ought to want to make it public. Notice what else we see here, and and, uh, I left this out of your outline. I'm keeping you on your toes. No, I just forgot it, really. 
but uh, you can write it in, all right? Transformed people unapologetically preach God's word. That's a big one. I can't believe I left that out. That is most definitely a sign of a transformed life. A key characteristic of a transformed life is that you talk about the one who has transformed your life. The one who has the power to change a hardened heart. Paul did. He talked about the transformed life and who had transformed his life. Look at verse 19 and 20. For some days... He was with the disciples at Damascus and immediately, underline that word twice, three times, he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the son of God. Paul got busy immediately, right away, preaching the good news of Jesus Christ. Now remember, Paul already knew the Old Testament, but he had studied it for years without spiritual eyes, without seeing Christ in it and plugging him in there. And imagine what it was like now for him to have the knowledge that he had of the Scriptures and now have knowledge of Christ. Imagine him going around all throughout the day and going, oh yeah, Christ is there. Oh, he's over here too. He's everywhere. And what did he do with the knowledge that he had? He went to those who needed it most. He went to the synagogues. Paul went there hoping and praying the Spirit of God would turn the lights on for them as well. Paul did this immediately. Now, he continued to grow in godliness, but as he did, he continued to share God's message of redemption with others. And this should be true of us, folks. If you belong to Christ, you have something to share. And though it's important that you share what God has done in your life, you share your testimony. You should also be growing in your knowledge of God and you should be sharing that with others as well. Because faith comes through hearing God's words. Paul shared God's words. He shared about Christ from God's word and we should as well. And we're told that the people saw that Paul had been changed and they were amazed at the transformation when they heard him preach. They said in verse 21, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem? I love that. Of those who called upon his name and has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priest? I'm sure they were like, all right, Saul's coming in. Let's get those guys and let's give them to him. And then he begins preaching and they're like, what? This is not the reason you came, is it? They couldn't believe That Saul, who was a great enemy of Christianity, who had initially come to Damascus to snatch up these who were preaching Christ, was now preaching Christ. And look at verse 22. This is so good. This is from Luke's perspective. I love this. But Paul increased all the more in strength. He continued to grow stronger and stronger in his faith. And he confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by making a strong case for Christ. Is that what he says? No, by proving that Jesus was the Christ. I love that. Paul was convincing. He not only knew the scriptures, but now he knew the Lord and he knew the whole story and he put it all together in such a way that there was no arguing with them. Luke says he confounded the Jews by proving that Jesus is the Christ. Luke says, no doubt, when they heard Paul preach. I love that. And it was obvious 
to those who had heard Paul that he had been changed from the inside out. Believers, do people know you belong to Jesus? And do they know it because you talk about him? Ava and Edie are always asking Leslie and me about who knows Jesus. This is kind of an ongoing conversation. Daddy, do they know Jesus? Does this person know Jesus? I mean, it's all the time. And a couple years ago, Edie came up to me and she said, Dad, I don't think Barney knows Jesus. And uh, for those of y'all, it's been a while since you've had kids. Barney's the big, goofy, purple dinosaur. And I say that carefully because if Joy heard me, she'd get very upset that I called him goofy. But I was thinking to myself, do I go there with her, you know, or do I just kind of leave it alone? And I chose to go there, and I'm glad I did because her response was great. And I said, okay, Edie, well, tell me, why don't you think Barney knows Jesus? And she responded with this, because he never talks about him. Wow. Folks, people who have been transformed by Jesus talk about Jesus. They talk about him. They share him with others and about how he has transformed their life. Well, there's one final point here, one final characteristic we see here of a transformed life, and it's this. A person who is transformed by the gospel is willing to sacrifice for the cause of Christ. Before his encounter with Christ on the Damascus Road, Saul was responsible for putting an end to the lives of many who were bold for Jesus. But after being saved by him, Paul willingly put his life on the line for the cause of Christ. Notice verses 23 through 25. We're told, as a result of his ministry in Damascus and preaching Christ boldly in the synagogue there, we're told, when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. Boy, what a change! That is taking place with them. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. So like with Stephen, because they were not able to hold their own with Saul in an argument, he was too convincing, right? They thought, well, if we can't beat him in an argument, we'll just kill him. But their plan was discovered by Saul and a few fellow believers helped him escape. And let me ask you this. When he escapes, do you think Saul's like, man, I've got I've to dial it back a bit. I've got to pace myself. I've got to tone it down. Do you think he does that? Watch what he does. Look at what happens. He goes to Jerusalem. How about that? He goes to Jerusalem. Look at verses 26 through 28. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. I love this. When he gets to Jerusalem, Christ's disciples keep their distance. And it's tough to blame them, right? They're probably like, I don't know what Saul has conjured up now to try to get us in, but we're keeping our distance from this guy because he had terrorized the church there. He had attempted to rip it apart. 
Now, thankfully, there was one in the bunch who was bold enough to reach out to Paul. He becomes his good friend in ministry, Barnabas. Told in verse 27, he reaches out to him. He brings him in. He vouches for him. He tells them his testimony about how he encountered the risen Christ on the Damascus road and about how he had boldly preached Christ in Damascus. And again, notice that Barnabas is appealing here to all the things we have been pointing out in this passage that prove that Paul was in fact transformed. And we're told they trust Barnabas and they finally take him in and when they do, we're told that Saul went out in the place where he used to persecute Christians and he began to preach Christ with boldness. Look at verse 29. said this. Luke says this. He says, He spoke and disputed against the Hellenist, but they were seeking to kill him. Remember when we were in Acts 7? We learned that Stephen also ministered to the Hellenist Jews. And notice here that Saul, a Hellenist Jew, and one of the ones responsible for stoning Stephen, picks up Stephen's mantle and begins preaching Christ to them. And in response, many of them wanted to kill him. Big surprise. And don't you know that when the disciples witnessed this great boldness of Paul, they were convinced because they knew the risk of preaching Christ to the Hellenist Jews. You do that and you lose your life. But Saul's love for Christ now and his desire to serve him was greater than his own life. But the time to lay his life down had not yet come. He would be saved once again from his persecutors. Look at verse 30. And when the brothers learned this, they learned that the Hellenists wanted to kill him. They brought him down to Caesarea and they sent him off to Tarsus. The disciples learned of this plot to kill Saul, so they snuck him out of Jerusalem. They brought him to Caesarea. They put him on a boat for home to Tarsus. And for a little while, we're told that the church had rest in Jerusalem. Luke tells us in verse 31, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace. The church was at peace for a time. And we're not told the reason why. It may have been because Saul was no longer an enemy of the church, right? He was, he was a man possessed before his salvation. I also read in the history books that uh, Caligula was the emperor at this time. He was a wicked emperor in Rome. And about this time, he was trying to set up idols in Jerusalem. So it may have been that the Jews turned their focus away from persecuting Christians for a while and turned their focus toward the Romans. We're not told for sure, but that could definitely be the case there. But we're told that the church experienced peace for a time. And Luke tells us at this time, the church was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. We're told during this time of peace, as the church rested, it was edified and then it multiplied, which, by the way, should be the natural progression. I heard a pastor once say, don't focus on building a church numerically. Focus on building a believer spiritually. So very true. And that's what we're trying to do here at Fellowship. Focus on the depth. Let God take care of the width. Well, they did, and God did. We're told that they continued to grow, and they continued to make a great impact in the world. 
As we close today, I want to ask you a a very simple question. I want you to look at this next slide and look at these characteristics that we have been discussing for the past few Sundays in here. And I want you to simply ask yourself this question. Are any of these true of me? Have you turned from your life of sin? Have you placed your faith alone in Christ alone? Are you obedient to God? Are you faithfully serving Him? And does that stem from the fact that you've been changed from the inside out? Do you have access to the power of the Holy Spirit because He resides in you? Are you a child of God? And are you a vocal witness of the Lord Jesus? And have you made or are you at the point in your life where you are willing to make sacrifices for God and his gospel? Are any of these true of you? If not, you need to be transformed. If you're here in Christ is not the Lord of your life, I invite you right now today, turn from your sin. Turn over the reins of your life. Give them over to Jesus. Make him Lord and be saved. Let's pray.